Welcome to episode four of season three of Saltgrass, Turning the Goldfields Green, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. The program explores the unique challenges and advantages of working for change in regional communities and small towns. Yet the themes are universal in an age where the main challenge of our times is how to navigate the imminent threat of a warming globe. My name is Alison Hanley, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Ilka White, an artist and textiles worker who is passionate about sustainable textiles. Now, I work at the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, or MASG, and we ran a fashion parade last year with the aim of raising awareness about some of the damaging impacts the clothing and fashion industries have on the planet. Ilka White has come on board to help organise the next one, which has been unfortunately postponed due to the coronavirus. But she has proven herself to be a wealth of knowledge about the textiles industry and what people are doing to address the damage it does or find alternatives to fast fashion. So just a note about the quality of the interview. The interview is done over the phone, so apologies about where the sound drops out a little bit. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land here in central Victoria, where I live and where I have produced this episode. I pay respects to the Jajawurrung elders, past, present and emerging. May we listen and pay attention and learn to care for and respect country as they have done for millennia. Salt of the earth people, grassroots change, salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. So Ilka, you are a visual artist who often uses textiles, as well as being a home and community textiles enthusiast. How did you learn to sew and do textiles? And when did you really start to love it? Oh, I learned to sew as a child and I learned to love it then. (laughs) I've always loved cloth. In fact, I spent a lot of time as a little kid emptying mum's fabric cupboard and rearranging everything in piles by very under various categories. So everything shiny went in this pile and everything matte went in that pile or everything. <laughs> then I went and I sorted it by colours, then I sorted it by textures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was sort of that was play for me. And I, you know, in hindsight I was probably teaching myself a whole lot about cloth. And also, but just learning through the tactile and the observational, you know, how cloth drapes, how it moves, how it feels, all of that stuff. Yeah. And both my grandmothers had a big part in teaching me as well. Mum taught me to sew, but they, but she wasn't, she's not a great great lover of sewing. (laughs) She did it because she had to, because we, you know, didn't have a lot of money. But both my grandmothers, that was their passion as well as as being a necessity. So her, my mum's mum, was a very exacting maker and would cut everything and do everything well and, you know, all the basting and then cutting of notches and <laughs> scaling up the patterns and all of that. So she was an excellent craftsperson and very precise. Absolutely. And, and, and very t- technically precise and very excellent finishing and all of that. And not just in sewing, in all sorts of home-based arts and crafts. Quite amazing woman I think both my grandmothers feel in the amazing category to me dad's mum on the other hand wasn't wasn't as focused on the finishing aspect but she had a wildly creative um, approach to everything she did so she 
She had no prejudices, pretty much full stop in her life, but particularly in relation to colour. She had no, she she didn't, she wasn't schooled. She was pulled out of school as, you know, not long after she was a toddler. She had a pretty, pretty rough upbringing, hard. She was orphaned as, as a very young child. And, and so she taught herself most of what she knew up until, you know, through her childhood and teens. And that meant that she didn't have rules to break. <laughs> so... Yeah, so she never knew that blue and green should never be seen. Absolutely, thank goodness, because um, <laughs> everything everything she made is wildly joyous on that on the colour front and the texture front. And she also had no prejudices around natural fibres or synthetics or you know so called fake you know fake fur or fake. She and she because of the time she grew up and the and the deprivations that you know of the era that she lived through. She she loved anything that spoke of glamour. So, you know, she loved dimentis and, and like I say, fake fur or lame or, you know, <laughs> that sort of yeah. stuff, anything that glittered. And, and that was worlds away from my nanny's taste on mum's side. So She was more austere. Very much. She was very, you know, I guess you put in brackets, tasteful. <laughs> she, she um, you know, she loved autumnal tones and, um, yeah, and I love both of them and I love both of their tastes. I love both of their approaches and I'm really grateful to have a bit of, you know, a little bit of both of them in the way that I approach making. You also are interested in things like spinning and weaving. and Yeah, I think I can attribute that. Like, again, I refer to family because I think I can attribute that to my own parents. They have always had a very strong down-to-earth <laughs> approach, I guess. Um, I mean, I grew up in the 70s and that was, that was part of the times, wasn't it? But very much a sort of back to the earth era in pop culture, at least one aspect of pop culture. And that, and and you know, we didn't do the full homestead self sufficiency thing. But I I learned to value the the primary, you know, what what's most connected to the to the earth, or the very beginning of any process of any making. So you know, I loved that cloth, like I said, and I played with cloth, and then I learned and I learned to sew. But I found myself itching to make cloth not just make from cloth, you know. So then, yeah, I think I was given a loom when I was 12 by a family friend and she didn't know how to use it and I wasn't able to teach myself very adequately. So I didn't get weaving until until I hit my 20s. But certainly the desire was there and the urge was there to design cloth. And, of course, once you become a weaver, you want to be a spinner because <laughs> you want to control the making of the yarn. And then inevitably, if you get into spinning, become very interested in fibre and growing it, <laughs> growing it or, you know, whether it be animal or plant-based fibre, getting to know fibre really well. And then if you do that, you know, or you, even if you don't do it personally but you, you get build relationships with growers, then you, you learn about soil. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and then we're back to the basis of all life. So. Yeah, I, I think in most things I'm always seeking to go back to the origin and, and understand it from, from the beginning and be concerned with it from the beginning. And I think also the other thing is the story and that, that's a story, I guess, that I just told and that's, it's a very, very ancient story and it's one that we've tend to, I think our culture tends to be a little blind to and, that, and therefore we, we consume without thought for the origins of what, of what we're bringing into our lives absolutely and, in every aspect even yeah, from apple pies we get frozen apple pies from the freezer in the supermarket instead of 
growing the apples on our on our apple tree in our backyard and knowing what it takes to make a healthy apple and you know peeling it and coring it and cooking it and making the pastry from scratch all of that stuff we just don't do it anymore we don't and and I'm not necessarily saying everybody ought to or you should have no self-worth <laughs> but because not everybody's able yeah. you know in the in the life circumstances to do that and and or if we apply that to clothing to raise an alpaca or or to grow linen and and put the hours in that it takes to process fiber which is enormous or the land you know so many things need to be in place before in a, in a position to do that yeah we don't have all have our own little farm a family farm that supplies all our needs anymore that's right but that but what permaculture always refers to is we're not we're not aiming for self-sufficiency we're aiming for community sufficiency and so everybody has a role and everybody supports one another and that's how things are made and brought to being you know through cooperation from one stage to the next absolutely so if you're the person who knows how to make that beautiful yellow dye and you can supply it to the whole community that is an excellent role to have in a shared system that's right or in cultures where i've traveled to observe this you have somebody who grows and they deliver their fiber to the spinner the spinner delivers the yarn to the weaver or to the dyer rather and then the dyer to the weaver or sometimes the cloth is woven and then dyed but Within a bioregion, and this comes to really mentioning the fibre shed movement, within a bioregion, all of those aspects will be covered by somebody. So you have a regenerative, because it's, it's local and it stays local, system of production. I should say it can be regenerative. In some places it's not and it needs to be, but, um, but it, it remains local. And that builds more than a garment that builds community, you know, that's that's worth so much more. And I think when you own a garment or a textile, it needn't be clothing, where you can trace its source, it's got it's got story, it's got relationship because you know the people, and it's got so much more worth because if you know the people and the process, then you value it much more highly than if it's just arrived into your shopping bag for five bucks and you don't have a clue who made it, where it came from, or what resources have gone into bringing it to you, and you, and you therefore, if you if you know all those things, and you love that story, and you love that piece, you look after it better. Absolutely, yeah. That's what leads you to want to repair it, and 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 that's and you know we don't all need massive wardrobes if we if we look after what we do have, and similarly we don't have to spend a little bit on lots of things, <laughs> we can pay a bit more and own less but have a much more meaningful wardrobe or collection of clothes to wear. Yeah, definitely. Now you're touching on some of the concepts in the fast fashion industry where things are produced at great cost to the workers and to the earth itself via its, its cheap and nasty kind of systems of getting maximum profit out of everything stage of the process oh yeah which is where you get your five dollar t-shirts from target or other things and and i think it's worth pointing out that fast fashion isn't all fashion so no. even some of the very top designers and top fashion week kind of super expensive stuff that that doesn't fall into fast fashion but often fast fashion mimics that stuff and tries to trade on what those people are doing so yeah. Most of those big name designers are actually hand, they're, they're people are hand stitching it in mm. you know, somewhere where they're paid relatively well. 
Yeah. Yeah. Ateliers in Paris are a completely different ballgame to mm. outsourcing on ships, you know, having having factories mounted on massive ships so yeah, that right. so that So that they're outside of the law. Well, that there's that, yeah. But also because so that they can pick up stuff from one place and manufacture it en route to another port. Wow. And and be putting drops, they call them drops. Yeah. <laughs> um, be dropping new new product into the market every couple of weeks. That's amazing. Where there used to be there used to be a cycle in the fashion industry of seasons, mm. you know, and even even that's a long way from the way it used to be, which was just we had clothes, right, <laughs> and we wore them as many as we needed to keep warm, yeah. <laughs> or to to be appropriate to the celebration we we're attending or whatever. Yeah. But we but we didn't sort of put them all away or throw them all out after six months. Yeah. And then then seasons were introduced and that's essentially just planned obsolescence. Mm. By putting out stuff that you know the designers know they're going to change next season round. Yeah. They'll consciously change it and they will have a marketing campaign that backs up the change so that if you wear that again you should be a little ashamed of yourself <laughs> <laughs> or you're not feel worthy. Yeah. Because we've moved on to this now. And you know that just makes me shudder. It's so, so abominable. Yeah. Even seasons. You know, I I felt so naive. I I have to admit straight up that I studied fashion design at RMIT, and I went into it completely naive about the fashion industry. I'd grown up in Central Vic. I moved to Melbourne for this course, and it was a shock to me to discover that there were even trends. <laughs> 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 like I mean, I was I was aware of what was in and out at high school. No one can avoid that. The nastiness of the click, you know, the peer group pressure and the clickiness and the observations of who's in and who's out. That's all very very evident to any teenager. Yeah. But but in the bigger picture, I hadn't really got that there was a summer spring spring summer season and a, and an autumn winter season in the industry. I wasn't really wasn't really open to the industry. I knew that I loved to make. I loved textiles and I thought that and I loved to sew and I loved to make my own clothes. So I thought that that was what it was going to be about, but it was about so much more than that. And and every every new thing I learned about the fashion industry in that first year shocked me more and more to the point where I never didn't actually finish the course because I couldn't live with it. I couldn't live with fashion as an industry being taught in the way that it was taught. Where where planned obsolescence was taught, the design of obsolescence was taught with no shame. And so I just couldn't do that. So I didn't I didn't finish it. I stuck it out for three years, but I went part-time in the second two, which meant I didn't quite get the degree, and that was fine because I went on and did other things. But basically I think I've got an issue with fashion. I've got a I've got an issue with the word even, because as soon as you introduce the idea of things being out of fashion, then you've got waste. Yeah. And even sustainable fashion even feels to me a bit like a contradiction in terms. And so when we were thinking about having a, a local festival, I remember piping up and saying, can we just not even talk about fashion? If we're, if we're talking about clothing, can we just say clothes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I think fashion, it, fashion obviously doesn't only apply to clothing. It applies to cars. Yeah. It applies to lifestyle choices. You know, all these things drive overconsumption and fuel capitalism and, you know, have a huge amount to answer for. If we could do away with them, <laughs> we'd be so much better off. Yeah, totally. 
Right. So we have had some many long discussions about the textile industry and its evils. And, and you've told me uh, about a movement that it's trying to be its exact opposite, which I think sings to your heart. And it's called Fiber Shed. Can you tell us a little bit about this movement? You mentioned it earlier. So how did it start? And what are its principles? Yeah, so the Fiber Shed movement began in California when a young woman called Rebecca Burgess, I think in 2010, made an observation about her clothing. And she thought, I'm becoming conscious of my eating choices, what I'm buying by way of food. And I think that's that applies to a lot of us, you know, the, mm. the slow food movement, awareness around food miles and emissions and all of organics, all of the issues around the production of food and big ag and all that are, are becoming more, much better known even in the mainstream. So she was acknowledging that she wasn't applying that kind of thinking to her wardrobe. So she decided that she wanted to develop and wear a prototype wardrobe whose dyes and fibres fibers and labour were all sourced from a region, you know, close to her home. And she set it at no larger than 150 miles. So she decided that was her boundary and she was going to try and make wardrobe from sourcing all of the stages from within that space. And so she she went about doing that and in and in doing that learned a great deal about who was still around, what fibres and dyes and artisans or tradespeople or farmers were out there that she could network with one another to start building up by a regional industry to make textiles again. Because in, in many countries where it used to be ordinary, it used to be healthy, it's become an import rather than local a local product. And that whole system you were talking about earlier about the grower knowing the weaver who knows the spinner, who knows the, you know, cloth, yeah, all of that stuff. So she was reconnecting those dots and seeing perhaps how healthy her local systems were and whether there were gaping holes in it. That's right. And what she discovered was that while she had she was lucky enough, and I don't know many people who can say that they've got a, a 100% organic old strain cotton farmer in their bioregion. <laughs> she, she turned out to have Sally Fox living in her bioregion, and, and Sally grows cotton from very old strains of cotton that are still coloured. So she grows brown cotton and green cotton fibre that doesn't require dye. She also she also grows white, and she's since linked into a network of people that can then colour it with natural dyes and so on. But yeah, so she had this amazing cotton farmer in her region who's completely organic, regenerative farming practices. But she exported all her fibre, obviously very top end, because those that wanted organic cotton, Sally could sell well internationally, but. It wasn't being used locally. And then there were there was, I think, a residual mill still about and there's less and less, it's been less and less and less of those in the States and in Australia, but they were importing their fibre. So it was, that, it was that insane trade. In Australia, we sell all our wool overseas. It gets scoured and spun and turned into cloth but then purchased back here to be made into clothing. You know, we've got enormous capacity to, to grow fibre in Australia, but we're not taking it right through this, the system in, a, in the mainstream, in mainstream production. So Rebecca then 
from what she learned, she started to build a network of people and more and more people became interested in her work. It started out, she didn't have a goal at the beginning beyond educating herself really and, and trying to reduce her own personal carbon footprint. But the interest in it grew and so she started a fibre shed organisation and a movement that's now spread worldwide. There are, there are fibre shed affiliates at various points around the globe. Anybody who's just volunteered to put their hand up and say, I'll research my region. And so in Victoria, we've had for the last five years the Melbourne Fibre Shed Group who have voluntarily researched who's around, put people in touch with one another, run workshops and discussions and conferences on natural dyes and regenerative farming and really started to build this this wonderful grassroots network of people interested in local fibre production. And in that five years, interest has grown and not just from within the industry but just general consumers are more and more interested in sourcing ethically grown and produced textiles. So they've done fantastic work. Sadly, they have done it all voluntarily and they haven't been able to secure funding. So they've sort of concluded their work in that space but they've left their website up with all of its resources. They've left their social media content up so you can go back to it like an archive. And so anybody interested in their findings, they're very, very generously making them available as free source. And I'll put a link to that at the bottom of the podcast description. Yeah. So that people can find it and have a look through. Terrific. So that's sort of like your ultimate ethical clothing where you know the name of the alpaca that, the, <laughs> you know, the wool came from <laughs> and the name of everyone who touched it until it got to you. It's interesting, though, because that's not actually realistic for most people, especially people who don't have a lot of money because a lot of these things necessarily are expensive because you're paying everyone well. But, but everything starts out that way until it becomes normal. <laughs> so pioneers are absolutely necessary in paying for that because it's paying for more than the garment or that cloth. It's, pay, it's paying to increase the interest and the demand. But, yes, I hear you. Not everybody has that, those funds or that time, and that's what capitalism has robbed us of, <laughs> time. And so, yes, yeah, so we have to be much more open and inclusive in how we promote conscious choices beyond, you know, that purest end of the spectrum. And I think as with everything ethical, it's entirely up to the individual to make their choices about where their boundaries are and what they feel comfortable saying yes to or no to. And I think it's one of those things that you can grow gradually into. You don't have to like leap right into the deep end and commit 100% to to the fibre shed kind of thing. But you can start by buying one item of clothing that way and just feeling it, feeling how you feel about it as you wear it and how long it lasts and and all of that stuff. And and of course, there's other ways that you can be ethical in your clothing choices. For example, op shops are actually a pretty good way to get some good clothes and not purchase them in such a way that supports the industries that are treating people and the planet so badly. But of course, it's not a perfect solution either. I've started to do a bit of an audit of my own wardrobe and it's been interesting. I've been all sorts of categories have come out like, you know, the fibre used and the dye and the origin and how long I've had it has it been repaired and how many times and does it have a story do I know who had it before me all of that and by far the majority of my clothing's been bought secondhand so I, I'm got nothing against op shops far from it but I do think they become an excuse for some people to over consume because they somehow feel like oh it's okay I've I'll just take it to the op shop so it's not wasted. Oh, so the people who are buying it new are like they feel justified because they're passing it on. 
that's right. So, you know, it's false <laughs> to feel that that's, that's okay as, as an ongoing model, just buying frequently and taking to the op shop frequently. And partly because if you're buying that frequently, chances are you're buying fairly cheap clothing and that's not very sustainable in, in terms of just being able to be keeping worn. Like it, it's going to be low quality if it was, if it was inexpensive. And so whoever p- picks it up at the op shop is not going to be able to wear it for that long be- before it really is rag. I think it's better – I'm repeating the message from before, really. It's better to spend a little bit more and own less clothes. And op shops are overwhelmed with the donations that they receive. A great deal of what's donated to op shops ends up being exported or or trashed, goes to landfill, because – some things that are taken to op shops are not in a state to be sold, but other things, there's just too much. There's too much. They don't have space on the racks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so if you can find something well-made in an op shop, terrific. But a lot of what's reaching op shops these days is not great because it's coming to the op shop as a, as a result of overconsumption. And I know you've also known people who perhaps buy into the fashion world's sort of mystique and prestige by buying their things from the op shop and feel like they've won themselves a trophy, but it actually is reinforcing. Oh, I think I think what I was talking about when we discussed that was what you're signalling. Clothing is a, such a powerful signifier <laughs> and whether we like it or not, every one of us chooses consciously what we want to look like what how we want to be perceived and even anybody somebody that tells you that they don't care what they wear if you ask them oh well, here's a here's a a pink tutu or a lemon drop yellow onesie to wear down the street they some people go fantastic <laughs> uh, and others say no way you know yeah. and so no because they just want to wear a pair of jeans and a flanny and that's perfectly okay but the reason they don't want to wear the tutu and they will prefer to wear the jeans is because of what both those things think and signal. So consciously or unconsciously, everybody's signaling with their choices of clothing. It's a second skin. And so the prestige thing, regardless of where you purchase something, if you're wearing a garment with a large label on it, you know, say Nike, then that's promoting Nike. <laughs> Anything with a label. I mean, Naomi Klein's written about this at length. Yeah, so she wrote the book No Logo. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So I guess whatever we're wearing is an advertisement for something. <laughs> it's an advert- advertisement for a way of life or a belief system or, or, or a, a multinational company that's got very questionable production line. Yeah, and, and, and the irony, of course, is that a lot of that stuff that Carries prestige like Calvin Klein, another Klein. You know, if you cha- if you trace that supply chain back, it's no it's no better than a whole lot of sweatshop made stuff without that label. You know, absolutely, yeah. Anything that's mass produced is going to have some level of problematic nature to it somewhere along the way because they're always trying to create the biggest profit, and so they want to spend the least and still charge the most. Really, that's right. And so, if something's very very cheap in a store. Even if it's expensive, as you said. Sometimes that's the case too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so aspirational buying, I think, that that promotes. High quality is good. I'm going to advocate for high quality. <laughs> but, and I'm also going to advocate for richness, but of a totally different nature. I guess it's just everybody wants to be rich, but what, what is rich? What is really rich? You know, what, what is real wealth? And I think all, a lot of the, the signifiers, again, of 
status in our culture and in in many cultures worldwide now, unfortunately, rests on all the wrong things. So real wealth, all the things that really matter, to come back to what's primary again, is our health, our soil, our food, and our clothing. I mean, that's why I guess another reason I'm interested in, in textiles is they're a pri- they satisfy a primary need. We have to remain, we have to keep ourselves warm, we have to protect ourselves from the elements. And on top of that, there's all this other delicious stuff like self-expression and design and celebration and art in in the making of, of clothing. And so I don't in any way want to be dour about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whether or not you want to participate in that, you know, parade, promenade type thing with, with clothing and art form, it can be and it can be joyous. And it, and it also is, again, a really strong signifier of place or it has been. And can be again, Tartan's an obvious example of that, and clan allegiance and so on. All those is a great backstory to that, a, a huge conspiracy story around Tartan. We can really? go into another day. <laughs> but yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm thinking of somebody too, like and, and clothing can be super political as well in what you choose to wear. I'm thinking about Frida Kahlo, for example, who chose to wear indigenous clothing of Mexico and Guatemala. Primarily, although she also had lots of beautiful Chinese silk clothing, and and has I've seen a photograph of her wearing a Mao type style suit. So her politics is evident there, but also also her values and her politics in choosing to wear Indigenous clothing when she was an urban woman, and it served other purposes for her too. The, the styles that she chose, the, the large skirts and the, and the square wheel blouses, they disguised her physical injuries and disfigurements from her her life but but yeah very I think a very conscious choice to wear tribal clothing and because it gave pride to those communities and and brought that brought the status of that craft and that art up in the art world and in you know modern culture yeah absolutely and I think and I, there are equivalents of Frida and her choices in lots of other places as well. She's not the only person to make make that sort of statement with clothing, I think. And, you know, not everybody's as literate in clothing as somebody specialising in textiles, but we're all literate in, in signals, whether we're conscious of them or not. Yeah. I'm just thinking too of a quote by Honor de Balzac, de Balzac, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he said, one's wardrobe reveals one's politics. It's the story of the story one lives by, and it's one's symbolic self. Hmm. So, I do think those things are true. It it says a lot, <laughs> and some days I've got to admit, I, it's too big a load. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to think about it. You know, and, I, and I've got a friend who she's a performer, and she hates clothing. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't hate it. She just finds it to be a burden. The choice of what to wear, it's like she'd just rather go naked. If, if only it was acceptable for everybody to go naked all the time. <laughs> just free her of that weight of that decision, how to present herself in clothes. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And some days it's a joy and other days I really, really don't care, but, of course, I still do. So Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think we live in such a complicated world at the moment. It's, it is really difficult to, to follow the trail of your clothing and, and understand it. But we have a lot of local makers on all levels and it's just an, you could just see it as something to become more conscious of. And I think that's one of the reasons we, we were toying with the name Conscious Clothing for the festival we were going to run about 
ethical clothing with mask is because it's just about increasing your consciousness and yeah becoming yeah thinking stopping and thinking yeah. about the choice yeah absolutely and it's not to make you feel bad about what you are doing or what perhaps your limited choices are right now and so you just have to choose amongst your limited choices but at least you can start to look for other ways and perhaps even if you go to the farmer's market or the artist's market or seek out local growers and just sort of understand who they are even is a first step. Mm. And and even before that, I mean, that's a beautiful step. But another another thing to recognise is that the most sustainable clothing you can wear today is the clothing you already own, regardless of where that came from. <laughs> you know, the clothing you already own, you know, there's no need to purchase more. Most of us have enough clothes. Many of us have too many. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me about there's a challenge to wear the same thing all year or something? Uh, there's been lots of little challenges out there. There's been challenges um, put out through social media or other, other networks to buy nothing for a year, for example. I put that challenge to myself in 2007. I, I decided I had enough clothes. I wasn't going to buy any clothing for 2000, Sorry, 2017. And I managed that really comfortably. <laughs> so yeah. you could say I, I, had, I already had more than enough clothes but I also checked myself it wasn't so much about what was I trying to, I was trying to teach myself the difference between want and need and just realizing that so often when I bought something it was want rather than need pushing me to do it and and so I just got out of the habit of walking into clothes stores I realized I was doing that more often than I needed clothing <laughs> yeah, just because you enjoy looking at clothes and you enjoy seeing what's around. And... Yeah, I don't go shopping as a pastime, but if I'm in a street for something else and I see something lovely, I'll often pop in to have a closer look at it. And I just decided to drop out of that habit. And at the end of the year, I thought, well, that wasn't too hard. So I went another year. So I didn't buy anything, not even secondhand and not even underwear in 2017 or 18. So in 2019, I found I relaxed it a little bit, but I still have bought, I think, two new items since the start of 2017, and one of those is a pair of socks. So, <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm not feeling like I've been deprived at all. My undies don't bear looking at by anybody besides me, but <laughs> otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly healthy and happy with what I have, and it's a real relief to to recognise and and not just theoretically but practically experience making choices out of need rather than want and other challenges that I've seen go on are 30 pieces I think it was called some sort of challenge to reduce your wardrobe down to a capsule and a capsule wardrobe is this term that's been bandied about a lot where you can combine clothes in different ways and so it doesn't mean you have to wear the same thing all the time this skirt can go with seven or eight different tops yeah that sort of idea I don't know why that had, they had to make a thing out of that. So that seems so blatantly obvious to me. But anyway, yeah. it seems that there, there are some pretty pretty shocking habits out there in terms of overconsumption that needed addressing. Well, it was interesting to me even the Marie Kondo movement when they released a TV show about her, with her as the host and she would go into people's homes and they would empty their wardrobe and they'd often have 
two or three wardrobes plus boxes of clothes plus a few bags down in the basement and she'd get them to put them all in the same spot until there was a mountain of clothing. Yeah. And it was actually really shocking to me because I naturally, I'm not one of those people who enjoys clothes shopping, even at op shops. You know, I just sort of exist in what I already own until it's threadbare. Yeah. Just because I dislike shopping. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but to see how much other people do consume and how much they keep the clothes long past the fact that they fit them or look good or uh, even clothes they want to wear anymore, they'll still have them. And it was really amazing to me to see how much consumption of clothing there really is. And and people would discuss why they buy clothing. And often it was emotional or psychological, like they were having a bad day, so they did a bit of retail therapy. And they didn't even try the clothes on, but they bought them. And, yeah. You know, so really it's a really complex human sort of like situation about why people are consuming clothes the way they are. And Yeah. You know. I think at base it's about feeling that we're not enough. Like feeling like our purchases have to make up for our lack of, you know, essential worth. It's really such a sad thing. But, yeah, the stats are terrible. Apparently we buy, according to Jane Milburn, who's written a book about conscious clothing, we buy up to four times what we need. (laughs) And that Australians are the second largest consumers of textiles in the world. Yeah, wow. 6,000 kilograms of textiles and clothing go to landfill every 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes? In Australia or worldwide? In Australia. That's insane. And two-thirds of new clothes are made from synthetic fibres. Wow. So if you think about fossil fuel production, because that's what makes plastic. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't last as long in my experience either. No, they so don't. you can't reuse them. You can't mend them. You can't that's right. upcycle well, them. Well, you can turn them into rag rugs. That's about the only yeah. thing I've found good to do with them. <laughs> 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 they, do last. they do seem to last pretty well in that state. But, yeah, they shed microplastics into our ecosystem. Yeah. And that's a whole other discussion, microplastics and yeah. the nature of these synthetic fibres and what they do. And that's the after that's the after effect of, of it. But in the production of it, in the making of new textiles, 20% of freshwater pollution around the planet is attributed to the dyeing and treatment of garments. Yeah. So <laughs> 20%. That's huge, isn't um, it? It is huge. huge. It, it, it's, it's kind of astonishing. And you hear figures like that, you actually can't visualise them. And I think I think the war against waste did something like try to actually pile things up to vis- so that they could be physically seen. Yeah. Because it is so, so astonishing. The other thing about the synthetics is that you can't compost them. Synthetics just yeah. have to go to landfill. That's right. This is where we get into the grey areas of ethics because synthetics can many things synthetics can be recycled and they can be they can be melted down and turned back into new. I mean, you lose quality depending on which fibre you're talking about and what way you go about recycling it. Anything plastic, though, in the recycling process, there's a lot of emissions and you lose like you lose a percentage of the weight of it through those sort of like it's not a clean 100% of it is recycled. You, there's, there's loss and there's pollution that comes out of the recycling process. That's right. But you can't also trust the greenwash of some of the eco, so-called eco pleaser. Cotton is really, really problematic. I mean, and then and there's so many places in the world that shouldn't grow cotton. And I, I have to say, I don't think Australia is one of them. Yeah, we don't have the water for it. <laughs> we don't have the water. And then hemp is has bandied about as an environmental fibre. But actually, it's great for wood. It's great for wood substitutes like flooring or toothbrushes or you know, building materials, but but to turn bamboo into a fibre means chipping it and putting it into a chemical bath. Oh, bamboo or hemp? Sorry, I said hemp, I meant bamboo. Hemp's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Bamboo, um, on the other hand, is not. And it's it's 
marketed as a green textile and sadly it's it's not, it's a really toxic process so yeah and and i've seen in in shops that i think should know better i've seen bamboo sold as an ecologically sustainable textile and sadly Mm, that's really interesting yeah i didn't know that about bamboo i have bamboo socks on right now i actually don't love them because they take forever to dry and they don't keep my feet very warm no they're not going to be warm no no i think your point about taking a step at a time is really wise because like any any ethical decision there's going to be a hundred different lenses through which to look at it or sides to approach it from so if you're thinking about natural fibres, that's one consideration. If you're thinking about locally produced, that's another consideration. You might just go all secondhand. You might, you know, there's all those different challenges you could set yourself. Yeah, considerations you can bring to what you purchase or whether you purchase. There's a terrific site called EcoCult, ecocult.com. The link will be down there about knowing um, about fashion being, you know, one of the fifth polluting industries in the world so now and and they say now that we know that fashion is somewhere between the fourth and the tenth most polluting industry when it comes to carbon emissions it shouldn't make us feel more complacent instead it should spur us to further action and they give us four points consume less new conventional fashion first second hand secondly buy second hand wherever you can thirdly buy uh, whenever you do have to buy new buy it from a more sustainable label that uses organic natural or recycled fibers and manufactures in a country that uses more renewable energy in, in, in energy efficient factories and and for, or even outside of factories uh, and for support political action to limit global carbon emissions from every source <laughs> and that that just has to come into our thinking when we look at every action we make yeah not just in our clothing choices that's right yeah but yeah. It, but but to a start applying it to our clothing choices is a really good start because I don't I think that's been a blind spot in a lot of people's consuming habits. Yeah, and demystifying the processes that go into making clothing is is the fir- one of the first steps. That's right because all clothing is actually handmade. It's just whose hands made it and where and what sort of conditions were they making it under. That was Ilka White, artist and textiles enthusiast, discussing how we can navigate the ethics of clothing. There have been a couple of other episodes linked to fast fashion and clothing, so I'll put links to them at the bottom. And all of the various references Ilka made through the episode, there are links to websites and information about those things also in the episode description. So head on over to saltgrass.podbean.com My name is Alison Hanley and I've been your host today. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd really, really love to hear from you. So email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Salt, salt, salt in the air. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots, 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 salt of the earth people, grassroots change, salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green 
on saltgrass.podbean.com. <laughs>